Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. When I feel up, okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 185 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, Preparations. May 18, 1969. We were almost ready. Man had orbited the moon once. Man had test flown the lunar module, the lunar landing craft, in Earth orbit once. But before we would commit men to a lunar landing, there were still a number of things to be worked out. This was the mission of Apollo 10. In the words of its commander, Tom Spafford, to sort out all the unknowns and pave the way for a lunar landing. It was a veteran crew. Spacecraft commander Tom Stafford had flown on Gemini 6 and 9. Lunar module pilot Gene Cernan had flown with Stafford on Gemini 9. John Young had been on Gemini 3 and Gemini 10. They would face problems on Apollo 10, problems that would be solved for Apollo 11. Most would be minor, but they would be solved. Stafford, Young, Cernan. They brought to their mission enthusiasm, dedication, responsibility, even amazement. And through the means of color television, they took us with them as they played their part in man's greatest adventure. On November 13, 1968, NASA announced that the prime crew for Apollo 10 would be Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan, with Gordon Cooper, Don Isley, and Edgar Mitchell as backups, and Joseph Engel, James Irwin, and Charles Duke as the support team. Coming from understudy roles on Apollo 7 in the leapfrogging crew selection methods that had evolved during Gemini, the Stafford group was the first all-veteran crew sent into space by the U.S. Stafford had flown two missions, Gemini 6 and 9, Young flew two missions, Gemini 3 and 10, and Cernan had flown one mission, Gemini 9. The Apollo 10 crew 
had about five hours of formal training for each of the 192 hours it would spend on the lunar orbital trip. Completely satisfied with the training program, down to the nth degree, as Stafford later said, the crew was especially pleased with the time spent in the simulators. Putting Stafford and Cernan in the lunar module simulator and Young in the command module trainer, and then linking them with mission control, provided situations remarkably like those faced during actual missions. They had four or five such sessions in the Houston simulators. When they arrived at the Cape, they practiced rendezvous maneuvers the same way. Each crewman spent more than 300 hours in the simulators practicing flight maneuvers such as re-entry, launch abort, trans-earth injection, trans-lunar injection, etc. Time was also spent in the centrifuge and at planetariums. Cernan even commented that he had been looking at stars in planetariums for five years. Now, with each mission, there is always a mission patch. Stafford's crew picked its flight patch in March of 1969. The patch displayed two craft flying above the lunar surface with a Roman numeral 10 and the Earth in the background. The astronauts also selected their call signs, Charlie Brown for the command module and Snoopy for the lander. NASA Public Affairs Administrator Julian Shear was not a fan of these call signs or those used on Apollo 9, Spider and Gumdrop. Shear wrote George Lowe that something a little more dignified should be chosen for Apollo 11, the mission scheduled for the first lunar landing. Now let's move on to the hardware for Apollo 10. Lunar Module 4 arrived in Florida in October of 1968. It came in two pieces. First, the descent stage on October 11th, and then the ascent stage on the 15th. The Kennedy Space Center inspection team, led by Joseph Bobick, found it was a much better machine than Lunar Module 3, so they had very little to complain. NASA was also quite satisfied with North American's Command and Service Module 106's performance in its checkout and delivery to the Cape on November 25, 1968. Although the contractors had shipped excellent spacecraft, preparations at Kennedy did not go quickly from the assembly building to the launch pad. Staying out of the way of the Apollo 9 pre-flight activities delayed testing several days, and during maintenance to the launch control center, the electrical power was cut off to replace a valve. The Apollo 10 launch vehicle's pneumatic controls sensed the power cutoff, opened some valves, which is the normal mode for those components, and dumped 20,000 liters of fuel, this was RP-1 kerosene, all over the pad. Besides losing the propellant, the fuel tank bulkhead buckled. Technicians applied extra pressure to the tank, which removed all but a few wrinkles, and later, the vehicle preparation team lowered a man inside the inspection tank 
and he could find no further damage. Tests of the stage through the first week in May of 1969 revealed no loss of structural integrity. Actually, neither spacecraft nor booster preparations held up the launch a single day. Although adjustments in the launch date for other reasons probably helped the hardware teams to maintain schedules. On January 10th, NASA changed the anticipated liftoff from May 1st to May 17th to fit the lunar launch window and to provide more time for the crew training. Then, on March 17th, Phillips postponed the liftoff till the second day of the launch window, May 18th, so the crew could get a better look at candidate landing sites. Lunar Module 4 and Command and Service Module 106 went through their flight readiness reviews on the same day, April 11th, with nearly the same men passing on the Lunar Module in the morning and the Command and Service Modules in the afternoon. During the lander review, a suggestion was made that the descent engines chugging during McDivitt's flight might have been a form of pogo, but George Lowe told Phillips that Faget's engineers had found no such indication. On May 16th, Phillips assured Miller that all hardware would be ready for the mission two days later. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on the mission plan. There was a time in the first part of 1968 when Tom Stafford thought that he might have a chance of making the first moon landing. And, more recently, there had been others at NASA, most notably George Miller, the head of the agency's Office of Manned Spaceflight, who had pushed for a landing on Apollo 10. From the beginning, Miller tried to quicken the pace of the moon program. It had been Miller who insisted on the all-up testing for the Saturn V, which simply meant launching a completely assembled booster instead of testing one stage at a time, as the more conservative engineers had wanted. Miller's impatience had probably saved months in the race with the end of the decade, on the eve of Apollo 9's spectacular success, Miller, like others at NASA, was asking, why in the world send the entire Apollo spacecraft to the moon, with all the risk involved, and not try to land? Well, one reason was that Stafford's lunar module was built before Grumman enacted a super weight-saving program. It was too heavy to land. There was some talk of letting Stafford use Armstrong's lunar module, the first one built that was light enough for a landing, and postponing Apollo 10 a month to allow the switch. But some, particularly Chris Kraft, raised strong objections. There were too many unknowns, he said. For example, the moon had mass cons. A mass con is a concentration of denser material below the surface that causes an increase in gravitational pull. Kraft's trajectory people didn't understand the moon's lumpy gravitational field well enough yet to predict what mass cons could do to the path of the orbiting command and lunar modules. 
Perhaps they would pull the lander off course for its descent to the surface. And while the astronauts explored the moon, could Mascons pull the command module off course for the rendezvous ahead? NASA needed more navigational data from Apollo 10 before it could commit the next crew to landing on the moon. Furthermore, Kraft's flight controllers needed experience in communicating with two separate spacecraft at lunar distance. Air Force General Sam Phillips, who served as Apollo Program Director, listened to all the sides of the argument and decided that the dress rehearsal was not only desirable but crucial. Tom Stafford agreed. He had wanted the first landing as much as anyone else, but he wasn't about to campaign for a mission he knew was beyond accomplishing. Now was the time to find the hidden unknowns and solve them, so that Apollo 11 would be able to concentrate on the landing itself. Furthermore, Apollo 10 wasn't simply a repeat of Apollo 9 in a different place. New procedures were required for a rendezvous in lunar orbit. Stafford and Cernan would take their lander and descend to 50,000 feet above the lunar surface where they would make a critical test of the landing radar. Then, from this close vantage, they would scout Apollo 11's proposed landing site in the Sea of Tranquility before rejoining Young in the command module. By any measure, the dress rehearsal was a grueling mission. It seemed to Stafford's crew that they had more to do on Apollo 10 than all the others combined. On the other hand, from a technical standpoint, Apollo 10 could have landed on the moon with some offloading of fuel to shed a little weight. And it probably would have landed if NASA had been behind schedule and it was the last opportunity to land on the moon before the decade was over. But if it had landed, it would have been a much more risky flight. At the time of Apollo 10, only two lunar modules had flown, and both those flights had been in Earth orbit. And don't forget, the helium ingestion which caused Apollo 9's lunar module descent engines to chug had to be investigated before lunar landing. And, of course, the flight controllers needed the full-dress rehearsal mission to give them confidence and experience for Apollo 11. So despite George Miller's position, Apollo 10 was not ready to land on the moon. Continuing with the mission plan, you may recall from previous episodes the basis of the Apollo mission plans were conceived and proposed by Owen Maynard of the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston in 1967. Maynard proposed a series of Apollo missions that would lead up to a manned lunar landing. Seven mission types were outlined, each testing a specific set of components and tasks, and each previous step would need to be completed successfully before the next mission type could be undertaken. For example, Apollo 4 and 6 were Type A missions, meaning an unmanned command and service module test flight. 
Apollo 5 was a B-type mission, which meant a lunar module developmental flight. Apollo 7 was a C-type mission, meaning a manned command and service module evaluation in low Earth orbit. Apollo 8 was called a C-prime mission because it flew men around the moon. Apollo 9 was a D-type mission, meaning a manned test of the command and service module and the lunar module in Earth orbit. And now, Apollo 10 was a F-type mission, meaning a manned command and service module and lunar module operations in lunar orbit as a dress rehearsal for the first landing. Toward the end of 1968, the mission planning and trajectory analysis people in Houston, led by Mayor Tyndall and Huss, began to buckle down to work on the refinements for Apollo 10. One feature of the mission plan was a two-phase lunar orbit insertion maneuver introduced on Apollo 8. The vehicle would begin the first revolution of the moon in an egg-shaped orbit to avoid an unsafe low point in moon orbit. If the service module engine fired too long and slowed the speed too much on the first burn, that part of the orbit must not be so low that the spacecraft would crash into the lunar surface. On Apollo 8's mission, the engine did fire for an excess of almost five seconds. So on the next burn, in order to circularize the orbit, the duration of the firing was adjusted to keep the craft a safe distance above the moon. This became a standing procedure for Apollo 10 and the lunar landing missions that followed. Another feature of the mission plan at first was the lunar module on Apollo 10 would simply pull away from the command module and return for rendezvous and docking. But in December 1968, Tyndall and the mission planners began campaigning to put the descent propulsion system through a real test down near the surface of the moon, where the landing radar could be fully checked out. Moreover, they plotted the path so the lunar module crew could fly close enough to look for landmarks and take pictures of the site selected for the first landing. Now Tyndall wanted to go even further. He wanted to almost touch down and then to fire the ascent engine to get back to the command module in a hurry, as though there had been an emergency. Tyndall's idea had a fair hearing, but the other mission planners did not think they had enough experience in the lunar environment to attempt this maneuver on the lander's first moon flight. Tyndall reluctantly agreed. After all, there were many more procedures to be decided on and worked out before the flight plan became final in April 1969. Now, I have an interesting clip of Walter Cronkite explaining the mission plan of Apollo 10 to the American people. The world from space to Apollo 10, a globe of jewels set against a background of black velvet and the stars. 
Man draws life from the sun, but he venerates the moon. A quarter of a million miles away, to poets, the unattainable woman. But now she's within the reach of man, and the only astronauts to see her saw her as dirty beach sand with a lot of footprints on it. So this dress rehearsal, the final step before man realizes the impossible, a dream as old as man himself, to reach the unreachable star. This is a CBS News special report, The Flight of Apollo 10. Tonight, a close-up look at the dress rehearsal for man's arrival on the moon. Reporting now from the CBS News Apollo headquarters, Kennedy Space Center, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Every time there is another Apollo mission, we say that it is the most demanding yet. Because every time there's another Apollo mission, that happens to be true. Each mission is planned as another step toward the ultimate goal of landing a man on the moon. To those on the outside, each mission is an heroic adventure demanding man's courage and his curiosity. And that happens to be true, too. But like all great adventures, each mission counts on scientific techniques and complicated hardware. Apollo 10, counting down tonight for a launch on Sunday afternoon, marks the first time that the complete Apollo spacecraft will operate around the moon. And the mission's going to go like this. After that launch, Sunday afternoon, the spacecraft will go into a 115-mile orbit around the Earth. On the second orbit, over on the far side from where I am, over the Pacific Ocean, the third stage of the great Saturn rocket will propel it an extra 10,000 feet per second to a speed of 25,000 miles an hour to escape Earth's gravity. And out here at about 10,000 miles, the command module will separate, turn around, withdraw the lunar excursion module from the third stage, and then they'll be on their own. On this long trip, 235,000 miles out to the moon, they'll reach there three days later on Wednesday, They'll go into orbit 69 miles around the moon for one day. And then on Thursday, Tom Stafford and Eugene Cernan will climb out of the command module, leaving it, now called Charlie Brown, behind with John Young. They, in the lunar module, called Snoopy, will circle the Earth, uh, circle the moon twice, and they'll come down within 10 miles of the moon's surface, within 50,000 feet, over the landing site, where if all goes well on this mission, man will land on the moon in July. On, after two, two orbits of the moon, they will come back up 69 miles high and rejoin Charlie Brown, John Young, in the command module. And then, after another day of circling the moon, the service propulsion system engine will have to fire on Saturday to send them back on the way home. They'll come back this long trip back to Earth, come directly into the Earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles an hour, and land just east of the American Samoan Islands, 400 miles east of Pango Pango. The lunar excursion module is built by the Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation of Bethpage, Long Island, and Nelson Benton is there. The lunar module is not as small as you might expect. It is nearly 23 feet from the base of its spraddle-leg landing gear to its top. On Earth, it weighs about 15 tons. It is not a picture of aerodynamic grace, but aerodynamics play no role in the atmospheric void around the moon when Stafford and Cernan take the limb down to within 50,000 feet of the lunar surface. 50,000 feet is only slightly higher than you might fly on a commercial jet flying from coast to coast. But flying above the moon is different. There must be protection from the extreme heat and from the extreme cold. That is why the reflecting blankets, as they are called, colorfully surround the lunar module. 
Engineers here at Grumman are interested specifically in how the landing radar performs on this, its first flight. But overall, they are interested in the LEMS performance and this, its first venture into the lunar sphere of influence, the environment for which this vehicle was so painstakingly designed and built. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.